This might be the definitive example of, of suburban ennui in a pop song. Uh, 10-15 Saturday Night, written by Robert Smith as a teenager. Uh, he wrote a whole set of songs, including, you know, the historic Boys Don't Cry uh, and Killing an Arab when he was, you know, 15, 16 years old. Cure were, they were sort of called the Southern Buzzcocks quite often by the press. They were always sort of seen as a middle-class uh, suburban band. They were from Crawley in Sussex, which is a new town, uh, which is like a post-war thing where, you know, these, these sort of well-to-do new suburbs were built. And Smith's parents lived there. He had an older brother. Uh, and that's sort of one of the aspects of the Cure's development that isn't really understood is that all of these guys had hip older brothers who taught them about more obscure, more refined music. Uh, his brother, Richard, they called him the guru. Uh, and Simon Gallup had an older brother named Rick who was a huge influence on them as well. He was, you know, he worked in record stores and we'd have all these, you know, 45s and, and this education, the way that speeds up, um, someone who was really already probably a prodigy in Robert Smith's case, in terms of the kind of pure classic, almost Beatles pop songs he was writing as a teenager, um, is not popularly understood. You know, he had heard the Mahavishnu Orchestra. He had heard Can. Uh, his friendship with Paul Thompson, their sort of initial guitar hero, was developed out of a mutual obsession with the Alex Harvey band. Not that the Alex Harvey band was particularly obscure in the mid seventies. They were, you know, doing very well, but they were really out there. Um, they wore like clown mime makeup at one point. It's like right in between Bowie in the glam sense. And then like ACDC in the like working class oik sense. So it's a telling thing that those sort of philosophies and attitudes would be an obsession of, of Robert Smith's. But the reason Three Imaginary Boys is such a compelling record to talk about is because it doesn't really fit in the Cure's catalog. It's also their origin story, but it doesn't have anything to do with punk or post-punk. And too often critics and people who are trying to retell the story of pop music talk about this, and they talked about it at the time, as a post-punk record, which I think is extremely silly. Because Three Imaginary Boys, the majority of it is pub rock. What I love about Three Imaginary Boys is it's probably the most honest kind of snapshot of what a suburban kid's reaction to all the craziness going on at that time was. The media furor, which was a game, the game of punk, has really distorted the historical record of what was going on at that time. Not everybody got turned into a safety pin, punctured leather jacket wearing, you know, facsimile of sneering Yabo, you know, 
hooliganism and, and just, you know, an excuse to smash it up. And right at the start, when they're first playing at a local Crawley pub called The Rocket, um, songs like 1015 and Subway Song and a couple of others that have this sort of pub rock, uh, straight ahead, almost bluesy chord progressions, those become the pub goer favorites. You know, the, the people out there enjoying a pint that, you know, probably are working in factories and are like 22, 23 years old, they don't want to hear punk rock every night, you know? And that's something else that people don't understand is, is that, you know, punk shows were kind of an event. It was a cut loose thing. And most of the people who went to them were sort of playing dress up and living normal nine to five working class lives. That's why The Cure has a kind of much broader appeal right out of the gate. The pub rock thing just wasn't enough, but it wasn't bad. Punk demanded a, a clean break with everything that had come before it and was going on and was controlling kind of pop culture in England. But pub rock was kind of doing that in its own way. It was its, its own strip back, take it to the roots kind of attitude, but it wasn't confrontational. It was just kind of working class. Let's stay in the streets. Let's have music for ourselves. And that's all forgotten. And those bands are considered, you know, really naff and nebbish. And, and the notion that, you know, Robert Smith is the first person to take a song as far down uh, as 1015 is during the refrain, uh, that Chris Perry, you know, was really thrown by that. He just thought the originality of that choice and the kind of haunting, you know, atmosphere of it was so compelling. And he was obviously right because the song remains, again, they play it at the end of almost every show for 40 plus years. Um, and I think, it, you know, the reason for that is they were playing it multiple times a night, even at their first gigs, because these pub goers found in it, you know, yeah, it's a little bit more amped up than pub rock was. It doesn't have that kind of drunken beardo, beer belly swagger and swarthiness to it. Rock and roll. It's got that younger buzzcocks kind of jumpiness to it and tension. There's, there's a nervousness and anxiety. The speed is almost out of control with the buzzcocks. That only happens on a couple of tracks here, but on 10.15, it's right in the pub rock wheelhouse in terms of tempo. I mean, if you listen to the 101ers, like Keys to My Heart, Daddy Put the Bump, that, that Ducks Deluxe song, the kind of threads of, of all of these moves, they're all out there. It's just the, the music that was inspiring him and the thread of music history The Cure has been you know, assigned to, it doesn't really allow for an understanding, a depth of understanding of what was really going on in his life uh, and in his mind at that time.
who said anything about pub rock accuracy the second song on three imaginary boys this almost sounds like bees make honey uh one of the early you know major pub rock bands if you take out like the honky tonk and piano Pub rock played, it had a kind of a dilettante aspect to it, but if you took it down to its essence, this is essentially what it would sound like. The other thing about Accuracy, uh, as well as Grinding Halt, and then the later non-album single that followed Three Imaginary Boys, Jumping Someone Else's Train. This triptych is sort of where Michael Dempsey, the bassist, um, really shines. Everyone's happy, they're finally all the same. Because everyone's jumping everybody else's train. Dempsey was an amazing sort of, you know, scale walking classic rock bass player. He's the Glenn Matlock of The Cure. He was friends with all of them and he really grounded all those those early efforts at songwriting. His technique and his knowledge of scales really uh, sets a lot of the early Cure stuff apart. If you look at video footage of The Cure's early performances in 78, 79 that's out there with Dempsey, you can just see that that he's in, in love with performing and it's fun and he's enjoying himself and that you can see the tension. There's sort of a stylistic problem. Dempsey's got the bass up under his neck, spider climbing with his fingers. You know, he's also dancing. He's kicking his feet around, swiveling his hips, smiling. You know, he's really enjoying playing live. It's exactly the same dichotomy you see when you see like Johnny Rotten on stage trying to be, you know, dead to the world, the coolest motherfucker on the planet. And then next to him is Glenn Matlock, who's just like, fucking loving every minute of it because you know he comes from a place and you know to an extent Dempsey does too of really appreciating the technical skill the virtuosity of a performer back then it used to kind of be you know this is coming out of the Clapton is God you know classic rock stuff you would go to see that guitar hero and you know you would you would judge sort of the playing that was that's something that doesn't happen anymore really but back then you would have a lot of guys at the back of the hall with their arms folded like uh, you know I think he, he really fluffed that note You know, in truth, there's only three or four songs on this record that have any sort of substance at all. When you look back at the the strength of the body of work The Cure and Robert Smith have left behind, and you look at the, the 12 or 13, if you include the kind of hidden track, the Weedy Burton, most of this record is pretty bad. And Smith is openly, you know, like, it's rubbish. He, I mean, Perry chose the track listing, their manager. Chris Perry produced this with Mike Hedges, who then took over and worked with Robert directly as he starts to establish his own ideas with 17 Seconds. 
Perry's notion of this kind of dead, no reflections at all, uh, dry, studio-focused sound really shines the best here on Accuracy. The rest of the record has extremely uneven production because they're stealing studio time to do this. Perry got them into the studio at night, double-timing on the jam, who he also signed and was producing. Three Imaginary Boys was recorded at night while the jam were recording all mod cons. When they left, Perry would call the cure and they would come running in and start working on the record in overnight sessions. So the actual instruments on this, um, the drums, are the jam's drums, <laughs> which is pretty cute. Dempsey continued to work after The Cure with Billy McKenzie. Uh, he was in the Lotus Eaters, who had a small hit in the mid-80s. You know, it's not like he was booted out, you know, um, or mocked relentlessly in some way. It really was a case of Robert Smith wanting to pretend to be something he wasn't necessarily, or that was different and evolutionary from the person he'd been growing up, which is the person Michael Dempsey knew. So in these cases, someone like Dempsey becomes a mirror that you don't want to see. Because you want to invent yourself as something detached or, or in some way maybe even elevated a little bit. Robert Smith is, you know, not all that serious about himself. He's very deadpan. He's very sarcastic. But there's no denying that he also invented himself and that when he performs, it's a performance, you know, in the very classic kind of David Bowie way. And he's upfront about that as well. But how that impacts the relationships he has in and outside the cure with all the people he grew up with in Crawley um, is a strange thing. It's gotten to the point where it's even affected Chris Perry. Uh, he was going to be involved in some documentary footage they were shooting around the 30th anniversary 10 years ago, and he dropped out because he knew that Robert was involved in producing it and assumed that he would just, you know tailor the editing to say what he wanted and nothing that Chris Perry might have wanted to add to the story. So that, that sort of control freak aspect of Smith, which becomes much more obvious later in the band's legacy, it really starts out here with the breaking with Michael Dempsey. When the Sex Pistols talk about the break with Glenn Matlock, they all give the same anecdote, which is that he was always washing himself. He was always washing his feet. It's a small thing, but as you start to, you know, go and grow as a band and as a creative entity, which has this image, you know, aspect to it, and this ego and narcissism, that's inherent in pop music. You're saying, look at me. And generally speaking, people are only going to look at you if you're pretty good looking. And Robert Smith was a great looking fucking kid. Um... That wasn't lost on anybody. He was a real heartthrob. And so was Simon Gallup. And Simon Gallup was wearing the black leathers and doing the whole, I play bass, I'm Sid Vicious thing, you know? I mean, it was pretty embarrassing, frankly. The same way Steve Jones is embarrassed of how much he ripped off Johnny Thunders. Gallup was totally in that entire class of 1979, you know, instamatic Sid Vicious bass players. 
Um, I'm sure everyone gave him stick over it and he did start to almost instantly tone down that kind of pose. But like, if you look at pictures of them when they were on tour in New Zealand, where Chris Perry's from, um, he's wearing just full on Sid and, and he goes back to it by the time they get to pornography with at that point, he's even got like the studded fucking belt and all that nonsense. It's just hilarious. So The Cure, signed by Chris Perry, are on the same label as Susie and the Banshees, also signed by Chris Perry, who's created a niche internal record label for each of these bands. Susie has their own label, Wonderland, and The Cure has its own label, Fiction. He's doing this so that he doesn't have to climb the corporate ladder to make sure everyone's paying attention to his bands. They just run themselves. They have their own little industry of minders who were probably making nothing, but this is the only way Perry can get the amount of activity and focus on the bands he wants is by giving them their own shop, essentially. It's a fait accompli that, you know, having the same manager A&R over them, The Cure's first tour is as an opening act for Susie and the Banshees. And this is where that same tension that dropped Matlock out of the whole insanity of the Pistols scene and whatever was going on with the media... Dempsey, you know, I'm sure he liked a pint, but on that tour with the Banshees, Smith starts drinking fucking around the clock. Like, Niles Stevenson, the heroin addict manager of the Banshees, who used to be Sid Vicious's minder, like he was literally trying to keep Sid off heroin and then became a junkie. He had this quote where he said, when the Banshees broke up and Robert filled in with Budgie, who was then from the Slits, who ended up becoming the foundation of Susie and the Banshees, um... When Robert and Budgie filled in those last dates on that European tour, because, you know, Chris Perry and Robert both did not want this thing to fail because it was their first big shot on a tour, Niall Stevenson said, if not for his enormous alcohol intake, Robert Smith would be the perfect replacement for McKay, but he won't leave the cure. When Niall Stevenson is aghast at your capacity to pound Black Label, you're deep in the tank. Dempsey still works with Lowell. He came back in 86 and appeared in the Boys Don't Cry video as a, you know, a shadow behind the screen. Clearly there was no, you know, permanent damage to the relationship. But it just doesn't seem like Smith could walk comfortably in these new shoes if Michael Dempsey was looking over his shoulder. That's Grinding Halt by The Cure from <laughs> their 1979 LP, Three Imaginary Boys. Yeah, this is a complete ripoff of Little Ava's The Locomotion. Uh, that was cited at the time by a couple of reviewers. Uh, but Grinding Halt is uh, really where they, they started to realize the reception to this album was not going to be particularly rapturous.
Jerry had pressed this up as a white label with an eye to being, you know, an album single. Because to this point, there is no single. Killing an Arab, not on the album. Uh, Jumping Someone Else's Train and Boys Don't Cry both come after the album. That's why Three Imaginary Boys was repackaged as Boys Don't Cry, not even a year later, uh, with an eye to the U.S. market. All three of those non-album singles get put on there. The track list is changed. World War is added onto it, which completely pissed off Smith because he hates that song. If you think about the body of work prior to 17 seconds, it's pretty weak apart from the singles. And Smith knows this, but there's still a great fan adoration for Fire and Cairo. And of course, for all the songs that form generally the, you know, the final encore of any Cure show, it's going to be Three Imaginary Boys, Boys Don't Cry, 1015. And now they've retitled Killing an Arab, Killing Another, which is fucking hilarious because it's just like a kid doing a book report on The Stranger by Camus. Um, it's just this existentialist novel that he'd read, like a million other, you know, post-punk, late 70s kids. You know, Robert Smith's bookshelf and Ian Curtis's bookshelf are probably just about the same. All the frustration with this anti-image concept that Perry had and, and how oafishly he handled it how fatuous and stupid the album cover is. Oh, it's three household appliances representing the band members, and inside there's no track titles. It's just pictures of things, and you have to figure out what the picture correlates to. It's just fucking torturous. Like, really fucking corny, manufactured anti-image, which was like a buzz thing already with Joy Division and Factory Records and the packaging being so obtuse and obscure and avant-garde. There was a massive raging obsession in the press over these new notions of how can we authentically move on from punk because punk is becoming ACDC and garbage, right? What's the next thing? Well, because of punk, a bunch of young journalists got a really outsized reputation and control over these music papers, which started their, their subscription base went up monumentally coming out of punk because there was nowhere else you could find out about it. So you get Paul Morley coming up, Nick Kent, um, John Savage, you know, and, and Ian Penman also, um, started pivoting to weigh in on this stuff and the cure sort of split them all down the middle. Because you had like young pop fans. Uh, I think Record Mirror sent somebody out to trail them around. Debbie Person or something. She followed them for a few dates and wrote a pretty much glowing two-page spread on them. There was a feature on them that said, The 80s start here. I mean, some of this stuff almost feels like payola. It is so deferential and so convinced of The Cure's place in this new wave of, you know, post-punk activity. Their exuberance, their excitement, their conviction about the importance of these new bands. I mean, Paul Morley is the Danny Sugarman of fucking, 
Joy Division. I mean, he he did really, really questionable things in terms of journalistic objectivity to help in hyping Factory Records and Joy Division. I have I have really mixed feelings about uh, his intentions, but to his credit. Morley has uh, finally, at long last, semi-apologized for how brutally he savaged three imaginary boys. It seemed like a manufactured sort of punk new wave construct that you couldn't really take seriously. And I got to review their first album, and I, and I hated the whole package, and it seemed, to be, it seemed to be there was a concentration on trying to market mystery. And that really, at that time, got up my nose, and I happened to review it on the night that Margaret Thatcher got elected, and I was in a really bad mood, and I really took it out somewhat on the album. His article is ripping every aspect of this band as a pretentious, posy farce. Robert's just written Jumping Someone Else's Train about the mod fad. And he's starting to get really reactionary and pissy about all of this press and media manipulation, about the fact that he had no control over the presentation or recording of this set of songs, and he fucking hates how most of it turned out. And he explodes on the John Peel show and just starts reading lines from Morley and Penman's reviews over grinding halt <laughs> and you know probably after I don't know how many fucking pints of maybe he was still drinking his dad's homebrew at that point. Grinding Halt also has that cutesy slowdown at the end where it's like dun 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 dun, you know, like a record stopping. Those sort of things are the things you do on your first record. You know, you're, it's the first time in the studio and you're going to do stupid jokes and screwing around and the Weedy Burton, you know, hidden at the end of the record. All those dumb, self-indulgent, you know, excited impulses. That's That shit's all over this record. The Foxy Lady cover, Chris Perry sort of egging them on to play that because he wants to put it on the record. But they're like, we're not going to fucking record this. But they did. They ended up playing it for like two minutes as a joke. And then Perry gets his way and Robert refuses to sing it. So he has Michael Dempsey sing it. And he put, they have to put like a huge phaser on his vocals because it's so fucking out of tune. Um, but yeah, it just shows the problem with what Chris Perry was trying to do in marketing and packaging The Cure. And Robert Smith very quickly pulling away from any aspect of, of control or oversight or even advice uh, from anyone. You know, we talk about bands having difficult third albums, right? He, he gets all the problems and all the frustrations out of his system just on the debut. You know, 40 years later, it just serves as such an interesting prologue. And it just explains so much about where Smith came from 
what he wanted to leave behind, and where he wanted to go. Another Day is the only song on Three Imaginary Boys that you can say points forward in any way uh, and is an indicator of where Robert Smith wanted to go on 17 seconds. It has the same kind of slightly chorused guitar with a little bit of room reflection to it, which became a signature of his sound prior to getting the Fender Bass 6, which Mike Hedges gave him while they were recording 17 seconds, and Smith was struggling to get this sort of what they call a teardrop or seagull sound that becomes the signature guitar tone for all of his leads and melody lines. In the same way, object looks back. It is the most regressive, the most tied to that that punk explosion that inspired so many kids to start bands. There's a lot of suspicious kids in the suburbs from, you know, pretty well-educated backgrounds who really looked at punk sideways as a fad that was going to end. Particularly kids who had older brothers, older siblings who were hipper and had seen cycles like glam explode and then sort of tread water and burn out. Robert and Lowell and Simon, who ends up joining The Cure just about the month this album's release, they've all got that older brother thing sort of cautioning them from diving headlong and becoming too much of a joiner and keeping their eyes on all the history of music that's out there that could be inspiring them. It's comical that Another Day has the phrase winter in watercolors in it because it is the most watercolor sort of impressionist basic primary canvas um, that Smith probably really ever composes. It's it's almost sunny, this song. You can see sort of sunbeams twinkling through trees. Um, it has an, an uplifting, you know, incredibly impressionistic flavor to it that he never really gets anywhere near again until you start talking about pure pop craftsmanship like a Friday I'm in Love or those really hysteric upbeat songs like Perfect Girl, let's say, from Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. <laughs> When you think about a song like M, one of the more upbeat songs toward the end of 17 seconds, Another Day is the bridge that takes you right into where Smith wants to go. It really is out of place um, on Three Imaginary Boys for that reason. And further, it's probably the worst performance on the album, technically. it's This is down-tempo in a way that goes beyond sort of blues stomping. This has got stops and starts. It sort of 
disappears and reappears. And Lowell Tolhurst just wasn't where he needed to be as a drummer to be able to carry this. Uh, he still hadn't really broken his arms yet. He didn't have independent control of his left and right arms and left and right feet to be able to play more complicated things. He was kind of a pounding 4-4 guy who'd you know developed a couple of signature fills. And you hear that all over this record, that triplet. That's Lowell's thing. Like that was, he treated drums the way a guitarist would treat a guitar. You know, I'm going to write a lick, a solo. And so he would write drum fills in the way a guitarist would write licks and he'd repeat them. And these patterns that he developed to his credit are, are pretty unique. You know, you don't hear that, that incessant triplet used during punk or any other, you know, rock period uh, in such a, you know, driving, repetitive way. It's in every song. It's the signature sort of move that he has. Uh, and then, of course, he also has that dominoes falling, dun, 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 you know, when he goes down the three toms. Uh, and really, those those two fills are about all he ever had uh, when he was the drummer for this first wave of material. And he just does the best he can do. He's He's sort of a general musician who ends up playing the drums. He's got lots of ideas, not just limited to drums, but that's what he's holding down in the first wave of the Cures material. And, you know, Lowell knows that. He's completely honest about it, about his position, about the nature of his contribution to the band and how it was more about the relationship with Robert, their past and sort of, you know, seeing things through each other's eyes as they grew into this successful pop act. The beginnings of The Cure uh, have nothing to do with Chris Perry. They answered an ad that was in Record Mirror by this German label called Hansa. I believe it was run by some sort of whacked out wealthy couple. I'm, I'm not sure, but they put an ad that said, you know, you want to be a rock star, get your ass up. And it's like a picture of a woman with her butt in the air. <laughs> and so they... They went and recorded, you know, some tracks and sent them in and they've got like over a thousand submissions and they selected 60 bands from all these tapes to come down and film on camera in London. And from that pool of 60, they signed two bands, The Cure and Japan. Very quickly, Robert sussed out that they had no interest in their material. It was just about looks. This label was trying to come up with kind of a punk Bay City Rollers. So the Cure get a thousand pounds, which they intelligently invest in some new equipment. They go into the studio for Hansa and record their own material, including killing an Arab, which is immediately rejected. And Hansa is dumbfounded because they wanted them to cover like, you know, I saw her standing there and Rebel Rebel and I fought the law. Like they were looking to create a marketable band. Very quickly, that fell apart. And Robert cannily ensured that the rights to those recordings reverted to them. So they never got put out on any sketchy compilations or bootlegs. The first Hansa session, I believe, is pretty widely bootlegged. But the second one, I don't believe, is completely out there all these years later. I 
So they take the thousand pounds from Hansa, get some equipment, and they have enough left over to book studio time. And they do a classic four song demo, deciding what, what's the point in, you know, some quote independent label. They could just as easily be scumbags. And that's what they found, you know, with Hansa. So they started sending tapes around to the majors, just like everyone else did. And this demo is what found its way into Chris Perry's hands because Chris was an active A&R guy. He listened all day whenever he was in the office to every tape he found. And he had it playing and that drip, drip, drip in 1015 just grabbed him. And in relatively short order, he signed the cure and everything just started from there. But in terms of wanting to start his own direction and not being able to because Chris Perry was controlling everything, the fact that another day an object are sequenced next to each other is quite funny because they are the polar opposites of what Three Imaginary Boys is bridging, the old and the new. Midnight in the subway, she's on her way home. She tries hard not to run, but she feels she's not alone. Echoes of footsteps follow close behind, but she dare not turn around. Side one of Three Imaginary Boys closes out with Subway Song. Uh, less than two minutes. It is officially 1.59 on the reel. This is along with, you know, Jumping Someone Else's Train and uh, even Meat Hook and Accuracy. These are the songs, again, that, that Michael Dempsey really, you know, is carrying um, with his bass work. You know, Subway Song is one of those ones that Robert says that the, the audience used to call out for. Play that one again. Play the drip, drip, drip one again. They were delivering an entertaining kind of sound and vibe that really didn't have any pretensions yet. It didn't have airs about it. They weren't coming out there with I Hate Pink Floyd on their t-shirt or, you know, saying, you know, down with Thatcher or all that other shit. They weren't an agenda-based band. They were a musically-focused band. The variety in the early work, when Smith isn't sure what he wants to be and what he's going to become, all those disparate influences, uh, the older brothers, you know, record collections, all of that is still there. And he hasn't really sorted out what he wants to be. And it takes releasing this record, not just in the sense of his dissatisfaction with what Perry did to it, to really look at all those influences and say, I'm done with them. You know, the, I've exhausted this, I've explored it. And it is, you know, the exposure to opening for Joy Division, opening for Wire, going on tour with the Banshees. This is where Robert gets exposed to those more, you know, melodramatic, um, narcissistic, uh, kind of playful people is the, probably the nicest way you could put it. And that whole notion of becoming the the arch kind of Bowie caricature with a little pinch of that Alex Harvey, you know, lunacy. You know, I don't think he really conceptually can see himself in that way until he goes on tour with the Banshees. And I think that's when he realizes, you know, this this person, this woman, this figure, this icon is sort of just as famous at this moment as Bowie was at various points. And there's nothing holding her back. I mean, she's Susan Dalian from kind of a fucked up home, but there's nothing irretrievably damaged or broken about her that's that's made her so different. There's She doesn't come from outsized wealth at all. Um, she wasn't even as well off, I don't think, as the Smiths. And so I think that experience... Seeing Joy Division and seeing Wire and seeing Colin Newman and Ian Curtis sort of staring down the audience, Smith wasn't ready. You can't just go from, you know, writing Boys Don't Cry, John Lennon, Beatles songs to I'm, you know, dead to the world and I'm standing up here frozen faced and sneering at everyone. You need templates. You need exposure to other templates, other, you know, dramatic actors in this field. A deep breath of submission as we 
It's really unbelievable that Side 2 or 3 Imaginary Boys starts with the awful Foxy Lady cover that Michael Dempsey sings. I mean, that sort of says it all in a way. And it, you know, it also contains So What, which is a joke song where Robert doesn't have any lyrics and they don't have enough songs to finish an album. So he just reads the words off the back of a bag of flour. That, that's just not cutting it. You know, I mean, that's that's rubbish. After another day, and in some cases, depending on your attitude toward it, including another day, the middle sort of six songs on this record are really grim. With the exception, I would say, of Meat Hook. I think Meat Hook is adorable. I've always loved it. I thought it was a hilarious, you know, boppy, jaunty little, like, it's almost like Bike by Pink Floyd. And, you know, Smith and they loved early Pink Floyd and up through like Umagumma and shit, like Adam Hart Mother. They loved early nut job kind of Sid Barrett Floyd. They loved, again, the variety of it, the fearlessness of all the different things that Pink Floyd were doing at that time. I love that they held on to Meat Hook. I think it's one of the best songs in that whole clutch. It's one of the most inscrutable, cute, funny things. You know, accuracy is very straight ahead and the lyrics are sort of meaningless. But Meat Hook is cute and funny in that way. It's like you just pick a word and you write a song around that word. And so strangely, after this sort of meandering midsection, the album finishes on a very strong note, three of its strongest songs, Fire in Cairo, It's Not You, and Three Imaginary Boys. Fire in Cairo has been brought back a surprising number of times throughout the years. Like you would think uh, M, let's say I've compared it to earlier on 17 Seconds, would have been played you know, far more often, but Fire in Cairo is right up there. Um, and it's it's got a cute sing-along aspect to the chorus, which everyone loves, but it's also got this great dilettante kind of Middle Eastern guitar flourish thing that was running through a number of their songs at this time because those are scales that he thinks are unique right it's just an idea he's trying not to play the same blues scales as everyone else and the notes and the melodies and those little licks that he peppers throughout even accuracy and and another day and particularly fire and cairo and obviously killing an arab it's a strange thing that he was really using these these uh, naive kind of pastiche riffs of of sort of pseudo middle eastern origin on so many of these early songs Slowly fading blue, the eastern hollows Catch the dying sun, the night time follows Silence and black, miracle Mirrors are lonely place where I meet you It's Not You seems like an easy one to write off because it's like yet another one of that handful of early punk stabs. But it's actually such a solid song. Um, if you think about all the bands that were around during punk, you know, forget like the top five, forget like Buzzcocks, Pistols, Clash, you know. But if you go maybe lower down the chart and you start thinking about bands in that like lower top 10, top 20 in terms of their their output and whether or not it's lasted, a song like It's Not You is really good. Like if, if this had only been a single... If they had like two singles and they were a one and done, you know, punk band and It's Not You was one of the singles, 
That would have ended up on a blog in 2003, no doubt. So when a song like It's Not You gets pulled out years later, it's great fan service because it shows that, you know, just like Boys Don't Cry and all these other classics, the people who kind of grew up and invested in their material, it can still have a life, you know, outside of whatever record it ended up on or whatever time period it was written in. As the years go by, Three Imaginary Boys is the song that just keeps having more and more meaning for everyone in The Cure. For everybody who met and grew up during punk and were this age, you know, in Crawley and in Horley and all these places in Sussex, who've been part of The Cure in some way, some ancillary way, whatever it is, enough to sort of know them as people. This song, this title track, Three Imaginary Boys, just continues to resonate and kind of fold in on itself and mean different things the older they get, the further away they get from those halcyon, you know, teenage days of, of imagining this thing, imagining what it would be like to be a band and being a band and then becoming a preeminent band and in the late 80s and early 90s essentially becoming an imperial band. One of, you know, you're talking Def Leppard status. They won the Brit. You know, they're, you can't get any higher than The Cure were in 1990. They were the biggest guitar rock band, you know, in England by a mile. You know, you think about those kind of, those beats, right? You take a beat. It's 1982, you know, we're breaking up and you listen to Three Imaginary Boys or you play it. It's 1984. I've got this new band with different people. Lowell's still with me. What's Three Imaginary Boys like then? And Simon comes back in the band and, you know, we become this huge band after like 85, 86. And we're all of a sudden we're playing these massive amphitheaters. And now we're playing Three Imaginary Boys to 15,000 people. Now we're playing it to 30,000 people. Now we're playing Three Imaginary Boys to 55,000 people in Dodger Stadium in 1989. And this isn't a festival. This is a headline concert in an American city. The Cure is the only thing selling these tickets, and 55,000 people bought them in Canada. 